Again, this um, continuation of the, uh, the description of monastic life and Lumpur Cha's uh, way of training and handling the different situations of um, spiritual training. And the, uh, uh, the next section is called Disrobing. The majority of those who entered the monkhood at Wat Bapong did so without any intention of disrobing at some point in the future, but without completely discounting the possibility. They made a determination to give themselves to the training and to find out whether they did, indeed, have what it took to stay long-term. Even amongst those who felt no interest in pursuing a life of family and career, few were willing to offer a hostage to fortune by declaring a lifetime commitment. To most it seemed arrogant and unwise. Who knew what the future held? So this um, uh, is an English expression, holding a hostage to fortune. Might not be particularly familiar to even some English-speaking people. <laughs> so, it means um, you wouldn't sort of go out, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't risk, say, making a, a commitment or declaring, oh, I'm definitely going to do this. So a hostage to fortune is saying it's definitely going to go this way. It's absolutely guaranteed um, that I'm going to do this or it's going to go in a, a certain direction. And so, um, and also, uh, and even if someone might have that, the inclination to make such a, a declaration, the uh, uh, encouragement of Lumpocha and usually um, most other uh, elders, senior people in the community would be to like, well, <laughs> well, let's wait and see, see, uh, see what life uh, presents. And uh, yes, it's good to have that, uh, an aspiration. That's noble and. Uh, uh, demonstrates a kind of sincerity and a commitment, but uh, life is full of surprises. So it's usually, certainly the kind of encouragement that, that I give when anyone says, I'm going to be a monk, I'm going to be a nun for the rest of my life. Is it well, I hear what you say. <laughs> and then uh, you see how, uh, how things uh, turn out because the, uh, the perception of life and the practice and, uh, and the mind and how things unfold over time uh, can indeed be full of surprises, so that what might be clear and obvious uh, at one time a year later or, or six months later or six weeks later can be uh, very, very different. The Vinaya does not, ta does not stipulate that, that candidates for ordination take lifetime vows. If monks become unhappy and wish to return to lay life, then they are free to do so at any time without stigma and without the psychological bar of a long, forbidding, disrobing ceremony. Leaving the Sangha could not be more straightforward. Disrobing is accomplished when a monk informs any person who understands the meaning of his words that he is abandoning his monkhood. From that moment onwards, even while still wearing the robes, he is, technically speaking, a layman. So a disrobing takes about ten seconds, effectively, according to the, the Vinaya. So it's, it's a very... It takes a long process to, to come in. <laughs> very easy to, to leave. And part of that, uh, psychologically, is very different from, say, the Catholic uh, system of monastic life. It's where, in the old days, you used to have to get permission from the Pope. And nowadays, it's, it's a lot more simple. But uh, in, in the, uh, the Buddhist way of training, if, uh, the, the understanding is that if one's heart is no longer in it, then to make a, a, a lengthy and difficult problematic process in order to, to leave can mean a person feels imprisoned and stuck in the, in the robes, uh, sort of locked up in the robes and can't escape, and that has a very negative, painful effect, not just on them, but on all the people that they live with. 
In practice, a short ceremony is performed. The monk formally requests forgiveness from his teacher for any offence or difficulty he might have caused him before informing him using a short Pali phrase of his decision to leave the Sangha. And the phrase is um, uh, Sikhang Pachakami Gihiti Mang Tareta. That's it. Five words. So that doesn't even take ten seconds. You know? So if you don't, I, mean, I, I wasn't meaning it, so I'm still a monk. <laughs> Just in case you were feeling anxious, but. Uh, if you, if, you, if you say it and you mean it and someone can understand what you're saying, then that's it. You're no longer a monastic. With these few words, he becomes a layman. Having changed into lay clothes, he requests the five precepts and some words of advice for his return to the world. A key reason why disrobing is made so easy, both practically and psychologically, is the recognition that few people have the vocation to stay in robes for their whole life and that it's, it's better for someone who wishes to leave to do so rather than live on in the monastery in a half-hearted and discontented way. Miserable monks tend to make those around them miserable, and their lack of commitment to the training easily leads to disharmony and decline in the standards of the vinaya. Few monks avoid periods of doubt entirely. Consequently, understanding the nature of doubt and learning how to deal with it wisely is one of the most important skills that a monk can master. Until that skill is developed, and it may take many years, the teacher is there to offer reflections and encouragement. If he sees a monk's discontent as a superficial wobble, rather than a genuine inability or unwillingness to live the monk's life any longer, he will try to help the monk find a renewed sense of purpose. The teacher will be aware of many monks who left the Sangha in haste only to repent at leisure. That's also a, another English phrase. Um, it's more about marriage than, than monastic life. It's marry in haste, repent at leisure. You're learning a lot of English uh, idioms here. So, marry in haste, repent at leisure. So, that if you get married in a hurry, you have a long time to regret that marriage. Uh, so, at leisure meaning you have plenty of time for it. In the early years at Wat Bapong, Lung Po put considerable effort into dissuading restless monks from disrobing. As he got older, he was less inclined to do so. A pattern common, almost to cliche, amongst leaders of monastic communities. Helping monks to emerge from a period of dissatisfaction with monastic life was hard work, and more often than not resulted in a postponement rather than a complete ending of their desire to disrobe. As teachers matured, they tended to become more stoic about the loss of promising young monks and saw the need to be more discriminating as to how they spent their time and energy. Some monks disrobed in order to take care of an ageing parent. Some left due to chronic illness, but probably the most common cause for disrobing was the strong pull of the sensual world. Many monks found that celibacy could be managed without any great stress, and more, and more than a few found it easy, but when lust did take hold in a monk's mind, it could be of an ogreish intensity. And, uh, again, another English, <laughs> English idiom, so uh, an ogre, is like a, a yaka, uh, kind of a, a, a big, strong, tough uh, demon. So an ogreish intensity would be like as strong as a great, uh, uh, a great monster, an ogre, like a troll. To those who are struggling with lustful feelings, Achen Jan remembered how Lung Po's words could be. This is, this is Lung Po Jan speaking. Lung Po would say, really think about it. There's nothing beautiful or good or clean in any, uh, any of the things in a, a woman's body. You sit there and you walk about daydreaming, imagining all kinds of pleasant things, but they're not true. You'll lose your freedom. You'll be under a woman's thumb. You'll lead a life of frustrations and strife. 
You're being seduced by sexual desire. Don't believe it. Don't disrobe just because lust tells you to. You won't die if you don't follow it. Believe me, lust has been deceiving you for countless lifetimes. And uh, naturally enough, that would account. You know, just to change the gender to the uh, <laughs> to apply to your own particular situation. But uh, the um, uh, and also uh, Lumpur, he would get uh, Lumpur Jan, who had been married before he was a bhikkhu. Um, he would get the the uh, the monks uh, who had lived in a, in a household life, particularly for the ones who had never been in a relationship or never been married. He would so tell them to walk, uh, walk people through what, what it's actually like living, to get, uh, living together with someone. And so that the sort of fantasy world of, oh, only, only if I could find the perfect partner, then it would be so great. And then he'd get the, the monks who had experience say, well, actually, this is what it's like living with someone. This is, what, this is what it's like having children or being responsible for someone else or someone else being responsible for you. So he would... Um, Get people, get the, the the ones who had that uh, the knowledge of family life to to walk people through it and say uh, to help burst some of the bubbles of uh, of illusion that people would uh, easily carry around. And then also carry on talking about Lumpur Jan. He also recalled how on arms round Lumpur would point out the sufferings of lay life to monks assailed by lust, the sound of a husband and wife shouting at each other the sight of a tired-looking woman trying desperately to console, uh, console a screaming child, or of a woman, prematurely aged by a hard life, trudging off to the fields. Any such figure might be indicated with the words, is that really what you want? When monks first ordained, they could be so inspired that the very idea of someday disrobing seemed unthinkable. But as time went on, their initial faith-driven perceptions, so apparently rock-solid, could waver. If monks lacked the resources of patience and endurance needed to bear with the difficult periods when their inspiration ran dry, it was staying in the robes that might suddenly come to seem unthinkable. When a monk started to doubt his capacity to realize the Dhamma in his present lifetime, he could come to feel caught between two stools, the pleasures of lay life being behind him and yet no clear path to the profound happiness of inner liberation visible before him. The thought of reaching the end of his life in that unresolved state could come to seem intolerable. It was the classic monastic version of the male midlife crisis. Some monks faced no particular moment of truth, but it was as if their sense of vocation just gradually faded like a flashlight battery. Again, a very familiar image in life in the forest in Thailand where you're walking along and your battery gets weaker and weaker and, oh, my, my torch just died. <laughs> So that uh, that doesn't happen so much um, here in in the West. We've got more electric light around, but in the in the forest in Thailand, um, the um, having a, a having a torch, having a flashlight with um, with batteries in is, um, and the, uh, making sure you've got a, 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 a battery with some life left in it is a is a, um, a regular kind of daily concern. So the vocation gradually faded like a flashlight battery until there was no light left to see their way by, at which point they left. Disrobing was seen by almost all as an admission of defeat. Uh, and with a footnote, the Western monks who disrobed tended to be more upbeat. Many opted to see it as, for example, the ending of a chapter in their spiritual life, a time to move on to new challenges. To some... Return to the world after putting their best effort into monk's life seemed like accepting an honourable discharge from the army after an ultimately unsuccessful campaign. Most were humble. They would say that they had not amassed enough good karma to enable them to stay in the Sangha any longer, 
Their store of merit had allowed them only this much time in the robes. Now they wanted to return to a less intense level of commitment to the Buddha Sasana, to lead a good life as a householder, support the Sangha, and work to accumulate more good karma. So this is a, um, a quite a common understanding, say, in Thailand, as, um, again, the Thai people might correct me here if I get this, get this wrong, but this sense of having a store of merit. Like, so sometimes uh, people who wanted to disrobe, either a, a nun or a monk, would, would say to Lumpur, oh, Lumpur, my merit has run out, mot boon. Uh, you know, as if, like, you know, you're, you, the the money that you had in your account is exhausted, and you've run out of savings, and so you've you've got you've got no more cash in the bank, um, and uh, so therefore I, I, my my merit has run out, mot boon, and so I, I have to leave the monastery. To which Lumpur uh, would usually say something like, "Okay, so make some more." <laughs> You're completely unimpressed by that sort of argument. So you know, the the best way to make merit is to meditate and develop wisdom. So. If you're mot bun, then <laughs> get back to your walking path. You know, get back to your to your your practice. But, oh, <laughs> that would usually be met. But yeah, I mean, he he was also very familiar with the dynamic of, of how things worked. And also, there's a, a very similar comment from from the Buddha uh, talking about that um, when he's uh, 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 it's a, having a, a dialogue about monastic life and the lay life. And uh, he says, um, I forget exactly where it is in the suttas, but uh, he makes the comment that um, if someone's living the holy life dissatisfied, if they're they're in the robes, but they're they're not getting any benefit from the holy life, they've they've put their heart into it, but it's really not delivering that kind of, um, as Jaya, Jaya Sara puts it, um, uh, they they. Um, <coughs> the uh, no profound happiness of inner liberation. Uh, and so that, uh, he said, if that's really uh, the, the result of having put time and effort and energy into the, the monastic life, uh, to, to stay on just out of a sense of obligation or obedience to a, a teacher or just, uh, just out of, of, of hag- habit or adherence to a, communi- a sort of social standard or a community standard, he said, then that, that individual loses out on two, on two counts. They lose out on the pleasures of the, the, the happiness of the holy life and they lose out on the pleasures of the, of, the, of the lay life as well. So they lose on both counts. So the Buddha actually says it's better off to, to leave and at least you can have the pleasures of the household life um, and otherwise you're going to be living in a really miserable way, stuck in the monastery as a kind of um, hardship post that is really not bringing any kind of blessing or, or, or reward. So I feel that's a very uh, significant comment by, by the Buddha that uh, actually uh, being a very, very pragmatic teacher uh, that um, at least you get some kind of happiness out of your life even if it's just being able to have supper or <laughs> go, go on holiday when you, when you want to and, uh, and uh, have, a, have a partner and, uh, and uh, see, enter into at least some of the pleasurable things that come from um, uh, a non-renunciate lifestyle. So, any uh, questions, thoughts on that before I go on to the next section? Yes. Uh, after forty years of experience and being through probably many disrobings and some of them probably friends, um, what what would you say is the most helpful attitudes to? Somebody saying, um, I want to disrobe, you know, I suppose persuading doesn't 
work? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, but you know, as I say to many, many things, everyone is different. And so, like, like I was telling the story the other day of the Anna Garrick who said, um, you know, I, I need to leave. And then, and then we said, oh, you know, well, Lumpur will be back in three or four days. You know, we, you can talk to him then. He said, no, I, I might last till nine o'clock. You know? So then you realize, okay, <laughs> this, uh, this is really a, it's like an emergency situation. And that, that was not, the, the, the guy was really, really desperate. Um, and um, and sometimes some, some uh, people, more anagarikas than, uh, or novices than, than nuns or, or monks here, but uh, one anagarika literally left at the run, like, like ran out of the gate. The, the walking wasn't enough. It was a, <laughs> actually it was quite a few years ago. I forget his, uh, I forget his name now. But it, literally, um, yeah, literally ran out of the gate. Like, walking was was not emphatic enough. <laughs> I need to get out. So they they have the expression in Thai, uh, the the burning rope, and that they like it's a it's not a, a rational thing. It's just like if your robe's on fire, you know, you get it off. And they they also have this saying that there's 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 three things that you can't stop in life: is a, a, a pregnant woman having a baby, uh, and she's in the process of giving birth. Uh, if you need to go to the toilet, and then a monastic who wants to disrobe. You know, these are sort of reptile brain or kind of brainstem sort of. Uh, driven uh, uh, impulses that you can't it's not a rational thing so if there's uh, if someone says I want to disrobe and you see that they they really have reached that point where they're they're desperate then there's not a lot to say just you know expressing friendship and and uh, and uh, support but uh, for most of the time say 95% or more of the occasions you, you can you can tell people are talking about things uh, in terms of, of the lack of faith or that wondering what's really worth carrying on or what they're getting out of it. So that um, the, uh, uh, the encouragement is to, uh, I find, I mean, again, it varies from person to person, but often getting a different perspective because it's usually the mind getting stuck in certain ruts of thinking. They just that uh, what, I, what I call the narrative self, the, the way that you, the, the stories you tell about yourself, what you can do, what you can't do, how things are going for you. And we, we tell these, uh, ourselves these stories uh, over and over and over again. And so sometimes just being in a particular place or with a particular group of people, it, it um, reinforces that. So sometimes just talking about that, or, you, know, that or, you know, I think you're in a rut and you're, you're really getting stuck on this, feeling that you're not getting anywhere or being self-critical or things being hopeless. Mm-hmm. But uh, often the speech isn't, a conversation isn't enough on its own, but actually changing the environment. So actually moving to a different place, being with a different group of people, being in a different landscape. And, uh, and it's not uncommon that um, at least it can delay the, the feelings of, you know, I can't, I'm not getting anywhere, I can't stand this. And uh, as Ajahn Jayasara points out, sometimes it's a postponement rather than a complete change of heart. But it, it can be uh, something that it has a huge effect, just moving to a different monastery, just uh, in a different group of people. And, oh, oh, wow. And so that, uh, just a very basic level, change of, view, change of air, you know, change of circumstance can, can make a big difference. So... Um, 
the uh, if someone is speaking in those kind of ways, it's also part of it can be that uh, or just they have it's, maybe it's more for the men than, than for the women because uh, for for men we tend to isolate ourselves a lot. We don't do a lot of sort of sharing or talking with each other so much more kind of chit chat, but we very easily withdraw into our own little corner and just live you know live with our stuff and don't share or, or uh, interact with each other a great deal this is my experience of the general blokish mentality even in california it's uh, the kind of sharing center it's the, they can still withdraw into your cootie and just be with your stuff so sometimes um just giving people uh, a real uh, opening to 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 sh- to share what they're feeling and and Oh, it can be the the case that they've just lived with their own perceptions and getting very self-involved and and self-critical and and just not had a um, uh, uh, an opportunity to to let off steam, just to to let their their particular feelings or frustrations or difficulties be known. And so sometimes um, on the monk side, just. Um, uh, giving somebody an opportunity to uh, to unload and to, to say what's been going on for them and uh, really have a, an, an open door for that person. That can have a huge effect. And that sometimes it's, my experience over time has been sometimes somebody's just been living with that feeling for two, you know, a couple of years. It's like, oh, I'm not really getting anywhere. This is really, and hasn't really talked to anyone about it. And just, I mean, it's, maybe it's more of a, a male thing than a female thing. But that just locking it up inside and not sharing anything of what's going on. It's also maybe very English too. <laughs> we're, we're the champions of non non expression of feelings, especially Southeast England. We invented the stiff upper lip. So let's keep it all inside. Don't show anything. <laughs> so just that uh, 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 giving opportunity to to let people know what's what's going on. And to, to share. So the, the system that we have of mentorship nowadays helps that not to happen so much. It's for the, so when someone is asking for um, Upasampada, then they need to have a, a mentor, an, an Ajahn, that they, they have as a, a closer connection with or friendship with. So that then if they are going through struggles, they do have a, a, at least a senior person as well as their own peers to, to connect with and to, they can... They can uh, uh, let it uh, bounce ideas off, or let it be known what they're what they're feeling. Um, so, and often that can make a big difference. That uh, um, the, um, the it it also depends. Um, yeah, maybe that's the last thing on it is the kind of character type. I mean, if if the issue is lust, then it's pretty straightforward. It's like um, this is you know this this fight's been going on for a long time. You know, it's like round forty five. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, throwing in the throwing time to throw in the towel. You know, this is too it's too hard, and I'm just um, ready to, to give up. So that's pretty. And so for some, um, uh, more often that's more uh, people who've been in the monastery for quite a long time, you know, five years or more. They've been uh, really trying to live a celibate life, but just lust coming up over and over and over, and, and just not fading, and just getting tired. Of you know, you know, being in a boxing match, you know, forty isn't it supposed to be a maximum of fifteen rounds? This is round forty-five. You know, <laughs> when's this going to be over? And just uh, you know, that sense of I'm, I'm just tired. I can't keep going. So it's, it's that's far more straightforward. 
the the people it's most difficult is the uh, where the character type is more the moha chirita the delusion type and that um uh, getting uh, when the mind gets all caught up in all kinds of of reasons and self justification and complicated um thinking and so that um if it's um simple thing well simple and powerful but simple things like anger or lust you know, um aver- you know, aversion negativity restlessness then it's that's fairly uh, uh clear but uh, what what can take a lot of time <laughs> and an effort is where the, uh, someone has a, a is a delusion type and they their doubts get so complicated and knotted up and and full of of, of self justification all kinds of good reasons and and why i feel like this and i should do this and i shouldn't do that and this is good and that's bad and and it can be a real tangle uh, you know and really very hard to get any kind of perspective on it so that that that's and that's one of the areas where more intelligence is is a problem you know <laughs> it's like i haven't got any excuses i'm just fed up <laughs> then okay but if if someone can come up with a whole you know five pages of excuses of why they're feeling the the way they do then it's it's harder to get to the to the root of it and so that um that uh, uh if if someone is the, uh, very much more of that delusional type and they get very lost in their own opinions and and, uh, and can't get a perspective then the effort is to try and bring the for them to bring the attention well what do you really want or what's actually really important to you to sort of cut through the all that um the the kind of uh, brambles you know like all the, <laughs> the 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 tangled the thorny tangles of of thinking um and it's usually a lot more straightforward if someone is just like i just i just want a partner you know i just i'm lonely you know <laughs> i got i'm just feeling lustful all the time and it's just not going away i've been doing this for 10 years and it's just not fading um so that uh, then um you you, you uh, it's it's really clear what the issue is so you might give advice about well how to redirect their their energy or if them their their mind is drawn towards aversion and and this um negativity complaining again you you talk about uh how to guide the practice towards helping them deal with that yeah aversion uh in terms of of uh a uh, habitual outlet for their energy and how to to redirect that. Yes. I was like is a clear sign when you should this road like if you haven't reached first chana after 5 years or something like that. If you haven't <laughs> reached the first chana after 5 years or uh, everyone is different. Like any progress or something like. Well it's it's uh, it's very it's deceptive because sometimes a, a person can feel like oh, Ajahn, you know I've been doing this for 5 years I'm not making any progress and And literally you know you say are you kidding like you, know, you are very different from the way you were 5 years ago like, what yeah you know i think you're doing really well what and i'm i'm not kidding i mean sometimes there's a you have conversations like that like no no but my mind's all over the place as it would think it from me from the outside you know you're doing very well you know but uh, you know this the way that uh, someone is relating to the, living with others or um the uh the their manner the way they handle uh comfort and discomfort praise and criticism and so on so that our own perceptions can be very very deceptive
So there, I wouldn't say there's, there's any kind of clear clear measure. There might be an app for it now. You can get to <laughs> But then you're not allowed an iPhone yet. So. Damn. <laughs> but uh, they, I, I'm, I am joking, but there, I'm, there's probably some... Uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of meditation programs that, that people use on their phones and their, their, and their iPads and whatnot. And so there probably are progress meters that you can, you can check how you're doing that reads your biofeedback. So you, uh, uh, but that's not reliable. <laughs> now the, the, um, the connection with our friends, you know, Kalyanamita is really the, the, the best resource. And to, to um, uh, if you have that feeling, I'm not really getting anywhere, uh, or I'm, I'm wondering whether the, this uh, monastic life is really working for me, and then talk with your friends, yeah, just to to, to share those perspectives and to, and to um, to so not just rely on on your own uh, ideas and thoughts, perceptions, because it's it's often not uh, uh, it's deceptive. Our own, our own impression. Sometimes it can be the opposite. Like the, <laughs> the teacher says, "I thought well, I was wondering when you were going to ask." You know, <laughs> we, we've been waiting for you. you know. <laughs> that's the, that's that's pretty rare. That's extremely rare. Yes. <coughs> If sometimes it happens that something obvious gone through, like some like course uh, difficulties, and then it's just uh, kind of really nothing much changes, like after some stage, like after some like first steps are done, and the person puts forth effort, and uh, like from outside he's already like, quite advanced and doing everything well, but feeling like a kind of stuck and not knowing how to go out of it. So nothing like dramatic or bad happens, but it's just, okay, like years going by, but uh, there is no, no real change. So I can continue like endure and so on, but like what for? Like, how, how to go out from this, like break through this kind of stuck, stagnated states? Well, uh, again, I'll, I'll wait till you get there. <laughs> but, uh, uh, every everyone is a bit different. I mean, Lumpo Cha often spoke about that kind of a stuck place in his own practice. He would actually get this nimitta of of crossing a bridge, and then coming to the the you know, like walking out onto a bridge, and then the bridge coming to an end. And oh, you know, the bridge doesn't continue. And he kept getting that that mental image of like I keep reaching this point that there should be a way forward, but there's no way forward. The bridge just stops in the middle of the river. Oh. And that was like a, a visual image that he was experiencing over and over. Uh, again, I think the um, Kalyanamita, you know, talking with your friends and saying that I, I keep meeting this, this this barrier, I feel I'm not getting anywhere, I feel I'm really stuck with this, what do you think's going on? Or uh, just using your own, um, uh, your own practice and looking at your own practice and, and then using that quality of wise reflection well what have I been taking for granted or what am I assuming here or I keep this is that I'm stuck and not getting anywhere feeling now um, what, what's going on here what am I what, what am I assuming or have I uh, have I taken a different uh, can I take a different 
uh, approach. So the so Kalyanamita, either your people of your own uh, uh, level of experience or going to a, a, a teacher and describing what's going on and getting somebody else's perspective. Often just getting a view from outside your habitual uh, interpretation is, is uh, very, very important, very significant. And, and sometimes just a couple of words from, a, from a, a teacher or from someone else who's had a similar experience, literally just a couple of words can, can change the, the whole perspective. And so that, uh, that would be the, the first thing I would, would say if someone is in that kind of um, just stuck in a, in a particular rut or, or feeling that they're not getting anywhere um, or, or, being, or having reached a certain point and not, not progressing, then that um, getting feedback from a particular teacher. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, that, uh, like I think um, uh, Lumpur Man, he described how he, uh, I haven't read his biography for a long time, but uh, he reached the level of anagami and was kind of stuck at anagami for uh, a long, long time, uh, you know, 15 years or 20 years or something. And that, uh, so he, he was aware of the, the level that his practice had reached and um, but that that last that last barrier this was just something he he and he didn't really have a teacher you know, that he was trying to, just doing it on his own but it was it took a long time to to really make it through that last barrier and then he, one of the one of the comments I do remember is that uh, when he talked about having reached arahatship he said uh, along the way I had assumed uh, that that uh, arahat, the, the experience of arahata would be um, similar or be, uh, have a, a, uh, be comparable to the other stages of the path that had been experienced along the way. But he said, I was extremely surprised that it was, it was a whole different order altogether. So uh, and that it was, like a, it was vastly different from the, the level of, of anagami. Anyway... That's probably not a problem for you this week. <laughs> if it is a problem, you know, talk about it. I'll, I'll be have mudita for your problems. Uh, it's stuck at anagami. <laughs> Dang, this is taking forever. <laughs> but uh, but you know, seriously, the um, uh, that um, readiness to because uh, there's, there's a balance between being patient and just going numb, you know, just or just carrying on because you carry on because you carry on and and uh, and you know, so going going you know the expression going through the motions so i mean that just like you're you're carrying on the behaviors of the meditation or the training but it's not uh, it's not really producing any uh, any visible benefit and then so that that um yeah, that's one of the areas where wise reflection is extremely helpful. That like you only saw Manasikara, because it can be like it's like you're making the journey. It's just a long, boring journey, like going across Siberia on the train. It's like oh, you know, how many days? It's just flat, straight. You know, and the train goes on and on and on and on and on and on. I mean, I haven't been on the Trans-Siberian Railway, but that's what they say. It's like it's, lo- it's very, very long. And, but you're going places, you're, the journey is being made, it's just that the landscape is, is very, very plain, just more forest, you know, train going in a straight line, again, you know, hour after hour after hour. 
So progress can be made, but it can it can be deceptive. So often, and if you remember the reading of a, a few days ago, maybe a week or so ago, uh, Lumpur Lumpur Chow was saying that he didn't like to talk about terms of in terms of stages of progress or, or particular benchmarks because they could be so deceptive and and people can get really fixated on those particular uh, aspects of it. But more he would talk in terms of building paramita. So that's far more the language that he had with Sang Barami, to, to build Baramita. And so that uh, even if there weren't sort of particular visible results coming from the practice, the very fact that you were developing energy, developing patience, developing resolution, you know, developing you know, reflective wisdom, developing kindness, developing equanimity, that these very important parameters uh, were uh, that you're, you're doing a, a lot of the good work, like the train going along the 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 through the through Siberia you know it's, it's, you're going along you're actually progress is being made but it's not particularly dramatic or, or, or clear and so that um, uh, that's what I, in, in terms of, of um, the uh, that that particular kind of question then just to the more we can really sh- clarify or sharpen that reflective quality, that investigative wisdom, that's that's so valuable. That's why it's one of the the four factors supportive of stream entry, yoni so manasikara. So that the and that so that which is significant in that respect. So that the four factors are <coughs> are sapurisa sangseva, association with good people. So spending time with with good people, who your kalyanamitas are. Sapurisa Sangseva, Sadhamma Savana, uh, listening to the good Dhamma, taking opportunity to listen to the teachings, Yoniso Manasikara, uh, wise reflection, and then the fourth one is Dhamma Anudhamma Patipada, practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma. So that also means practicing Dhamma not in accordance with self view, or like I should, I must, I've got to, I'm going to get, or. Um, or just blind obedience. Well, the Ajahn said I should, so I am doing it. But practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma so that making effort in the practice um, really based on on mindfulness and wisdom, not based on self-view or or just um, habit. Okay, the next section is called Like Rain About to Fall. Ordinations and disrobings of junior monks are such a normal part of monastic life in Thailand, even in forest monasteries, that they occasion little remark. However, when a senior monk decides to leave the Sangha, considerable shockwaves pass through the monastery, particularly amongst monks who are themselves caught in a web of doubt. So it was, so it was when the abbot of one of the branch monasteries, one of Lumpur Cha's senior disciples to boot, arrived one day, strained, pale-faced, with the unenviable task of announcing that he had fallen in love with a lay supporter and wanted to disrobe and get married. To Lumpur, a monk intending to abandon monastic training because of romantic infatuation, was about to take a, was about to take a foolish step backwards and downwards. He considered lust as merely the immature expression of a noble emotion, something that should be flipped over, quote-unquote, into metta, loving-kindness. And this is the advice that uh, Lumpur gave him. You've got to flip this personal love of yours over into a general love, a love for all sentient beings, like the love of a mother or father for their child. 
You have to wash the sensuality out of your affection, like someone wanting to eat wild yams has to soak their heads first to wash out the poison. Worldly love is the same. You have to reflect on it, look at it, until you see the suffering bound up in it, and then gradually wash away the germ of intoxication. That leaves you with a pure love, like that of a teacher for his disciples. If you can't wash the sensuality out of love, then it'll still be there, still bossing you around when you're an old man. Sexual desire was to be clearly understood, not repressed, but investigated. And Paul suggested, as teachers have generally done in this situation, a temporary change of surroundings. He made an appeal to the monk's pride. Again, this is Lumpur speaking, giving the advice to the same person. Reflect on the suffering of sexual desire until you can let it go. If you can't solve the problem with wisdom, or at least reduce its strength, then leave your monastery for a while. After you've re-established your practice, then return. When you fall down, you have to know how to pick yourself up again. You have to know how to struggle and crawl. When you've been knocked over, don't just lie there helplessly and give up. But once the idea of disrobing has become real to a monk, it gains an almost irresistible momentum, a sense of inevitability, which, following an excruciating period of indecision, often feels like a blessed relief, undermines the monk's willingness to question his decision. It was this sense that there was no longer a way back that Lung Po sought to counter. Again, this is Lung Po Chao speaking. According to the old saying, there are five unstoppable things. Rain about to fall, excrement about to leave the body, a person about to die, a child about to be born, and a monk about to disrobe. The first four are true, I'm sure, but not the last one. I'm confident that a monk can be stopped from disrobing. I myself once considered disrobing, and I changed my mind. In trying to puncture the unrealistic visions of the future that the monk had created, Lumpur could paint a vivid picture. Whereas the monk's life was untrammeled, he said, with the opportunity to go walking carefree through the forests and mountains on Tudong, the householder's life was cramped and constricted. Again, Lumpur is speaking. Having a family imprisons you. You end up with the baby crying, your wife grumbling, your father-in-law scolding you, your mother-in-law hating you, hemmed in by pots and pans. Think about it! He reminded the monk of the difficulties of making a way in the world, of how so many years of living by a high moral standard made surviving in a duplicitous world awkward and painful. He called to mind monks who had left and, once the novelty had worn off, bitterly regretted their decision to disrobe. He described the pleasures of sensuality as superficial and fleeting, like the taste of good food on the tongue, in no way comparable to the profound and lasting well-being that could be realized through Dhamma practice. Again, Lumpur is speaking. If you keep meditating until your mind becomes calm and lucid and you see the Dhamma, then you will truly be at ease. Sometimes you can be so full of bliss that you don't need to eat at all. And it's a profound ease, not just a pleasant sensation on the surface of your your tongue. The fundamental message that Lumpur sought to convey was that lust and longing were not things outside the monastic training pulling the monk inexorably away from it. On the contrary, Dealing with such emotional crises was an integral part of the training. Looking at the suffering, letting go of the desires that fed it, freeing oneself from the suffering through the practice of the Eightfold Path, this was the very heart of monastic life. Again, Lumpur is speaking. Whatever kind of suffering arises, then contemplate it. Look at it until you see it clearly. Sometimes when it's not clear, you have to fast and go without sleep and fight with it. Be willing to die. 
Venerable Ajahn Tongrat once considered disrobing. That's one of uh, Lumpur Cha's teachers. He wouldn't listen to anybody who tried to dissuade him. His mind was made up. But then one day, he asked for an axe from the villagers and started chopping logs. He chopped for three days and three nights and said he was exhausted and his hands were covered in blisters. Then he shouted out loud, Now, do you know who's master? He was talking to his defilements. Ajahn Tongrat was famous for being an eccentric uh, Dhamma teacher. There's many Ajahn Tongrat stories. Again, Lumpur is speaking. Great masters have been through this. One of Lumpur Man's disciples fell in love with a woman who regularly put food in his bowl and arms round. His friends took him off to meditate and shut him up in the oppositor hall. He fasted for five or six days, and then his mind flipped upright. He saw the unattractiveness of the body. His mind became calm and lucid. He saw the Dhamma, and he survived. Sexual desire is your weak point, and you have to remedy it with meditation on the unattractive parts of the body. Keep testing your strength until you know how much you can take. Don't let the defilements keep punching you on your weak spot until they knock you out. Develop more skill in meditation. If the defilements come high, then duck underneath them. If you're not strong enough to take them on, then when they come at you, when, then when they come at you low, jump over them and run away for a while. That was also a common expression. If they come high, duck under. If they come low, jump over them. <laughs> the decision to disrobe may not be completely irrevocable. Nevertheless, once a monk has made up his mind to disrobe, even the rhetorical skills and charisma of a master like Lumpur Cha rarely succeed in changing his mind. He feels a momentum. It's as if he's travelling downhill without brakes and is being encouraged to turn around and climb back up the mountain. In this particular case, after a short period of reflection undertaken out of deference to his teacher, the monk disrobed. Little was heard of him after that. Perhaps he lived happily ever after. Perhaps he did not. So uh, in uh, Paul Brighter's book, Venerable Father, there's uh, wonderful accounts of him trying to get Lumpur Chao to agree to him to disrobe. And he, he would, uh, Lumpur Chao would come to visit Wat Pananachat and and Paul would be ready with his tray of candles and flowers and incense. And, and then Lumpur had this way of, he wouldn't just ignore you, he would, so, he would so much ignore you, he wouldn't even give the signal, I'm ignoring you. You know, it's like, you're, you're so not there, I'm not even ignoring you. He was like completely transparent. And uh, <clears throat> so that Paul couldn't even get close with his tray and to make his offerings. And then, and then uh, he'd go over to Wapapong and try and, ca- and try and catch Lumpur, and he couldn't catch him there. And then he'd come back to Wat Nanachat and try and catch him again. And, Finally, he got uh, got to go and see him, and there's a, a certain point in the, his account of this where he he finally got to talk to Lumpur, and he had his his uh, tray of candles and flowers and incense, and but then he's he's leaving the the sala still in his robes, clutching his tray, saying, "I need a lawyer." <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, Lumpur kept kind of flipping him around, and. But eventually, he uh, he did. Lumpur did agree to let him disrobe, and then uh, and there's this very very touching moment. It's uh, it's really quite uh, quite poignant, quite beautiful, where finally after after Warapanyo's disrobed, then Andrew Chow sticks his hand out, and Warapanyo looks at it and it's like, huh? he says, shake hands, shake hands. You're a farang, shake hands. You shake hands, right? You're a layman now, so we can shake hands. So it was like Lumpur was in his own way um, respecting. Uh, Paul's decision to to disrobe and uh, sort of stepping down to his world to kind of make a, a gesture. Thai monks would don't shake hands, let alone an ajahn with their disciples. It's just not something that you do. But Lumpur had been to the west 
uh, a couple of times by then and had been taught about handshake, you know, shaking hands. And so that it's very, very, very sweet um, uh, that the, uh, he was undertook. Uh, he'd been to the West once by that time. It was um, the Vassar of 77 that, uh, that uh, he had learned about handshaking. So he shook hands with Paul and said, okay, you're on your way. But also there's uh, one of the Jataka stories. You know, this is not just um, uh, an issue from, from the current times, but in one of the Jataka stories um, in the previous lifetime of the Buddha, then it's, just, it's Jataka number 66, if you're interested. It describes whether the Buddha is a, a yogi um, and he um, uh, is invited to go and live in the grounds of the, the royal palace. And um, he had a lot of psychic powers and he would be invited to go and teach the, the, the king and queen every day. So he lived out in the, in the, in the garden, uh, in, the, in the shrubbery, uh, and, uh, and he would come to the palace and he'd, he'd float up into the air and then fly in through the, the window into the, into the throne room and uh, offer teachings every day to, to the, uh, the royal couple and the, and the court. And then, as the story goes in this Jataka, then one day he, he flew up into the air and he flew in through the wrong window and he flew into the queen's bedroom. And she was in a state of, uh, of undress, shall we say, déshabillé. And so that the, uh, um, the, the yogi, uh, the, the bodhisattva, was, was struck by the, the sight of the half, half-dressed queen and fell madly in love with her. So then uh, he was very disturbed by this and... Um, but couldn't let go of that image of the the undressed queen, and so then um, the uh, he he told the the king and queen that he'd fallen in love with, with her and um, and uh, wanted to be with her, and so the king very very graciously said, well, if venerable sir, if you want to be with with uh, her Majesty, then I'm happy to support that. If she's if she's okay with that, then uh, off you, you know I'm happy to to uh, you're, my, you're our teacher and our, our beloved guru so that whatever you, you feel is a good thing to do then we're, we'll support that um, so in that lifetime the king had, was uh, Ananda in a later life and the queen was Upalawanna um, and so that they <coughs> the, they agreed to to, uh, to the yogi getting married to Upalawanna and going off uh, but they, uh, they <coughs> there's this very interesting little passage where the two of them uh, the king and the queen conspire together and say, our teacher, he used to be so wise, he's really lost the path. You know, what can we do to bring him back onto, onto track so that we can help him? So they, they plot this, this kind of um, maneuver, this sort of, uh, uh, they, they play this kind of trick on the, on the bodhisattva. And so that the, the king says, well, I'll set, we'll set you up in a home in the, in the town and so that you can live together and have a happy life. But they, they set them up in a kind of dingy part of town that's a bit sort of noisy and grubby. And, um, and uh, of course, being a yogi, he doesn't have a livelihood. He doesn't know how to make any money. And so that then he, he, so he's going around the, the, the town and trying to, to find a way to support the two of them. And, and so then he comes, comes back home and she says, what, you know, nothing to eat again? You know, what kind of a husband are you? And starts to give him a really bad time. Oh, they're getting pretty hungry. And oh well, you know, I love her very much, but oh yeah, life is tough and it's kind of noisy here and it's a grubby street and and uh, yeah, this is this is not kind of what I really had in mind. And so this the whole thing is a plot between the king and queen. And then finally, uh, uh, after some period of time, the the bodhisattva says, um, yeah. Yeah, you, you, uh, you, you know, your um, your Majesty, um, 
my dear wife, uh, you know, I've, I think I've come to my senses and I think this is not a very good idea after all. Um, and so, you know, with your permission, I'd like to bring this marriage to an end. And, and then, you know, I don't know if your husband will accept you back again. Your former husband will accept you back again. But, you know, I very regrettably um, feel that we have to call this to a close. And she says, well, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, I'll, I'll think about it. And, and uh, may, maybe it's all right. I, I'll, I'll talk to my former husband. And so she goes back to the palace and says, <laughs> yes. We done it. We did it. So that then the king said, oh, "Well, uh, let me talk to to our, let me talk to the, the former yogi, our, our teacher, and say, well, you know, we um, we were your students, and we still have you uh, as our teacher, and we hold you in high regard. And and yes, we are, saw that you had uh, uh, indeed had profound feelings of affection for her, her Majesty, but those have come to an end, and so um, I'm prepared to accept her back into our, our marriage and." Uh, uh, and so we're happy to, to allow you to return to your monastic status um, and to, to give up on this, this marriage. And so we, uh, we can just draw that whole uh, episode to a close. And so then it said that the, uh, the yogi then flew out of the... <laughs> flew out through the... His psychic powers came back and he flew out through the window and, and took off for the Himalayas and was not, <laughs> was not seen in that area again. So. You can, it, it's uh, uh, Jataka story number 66, you can look it up for yourself, but the, the Bodhisattva, so it's, uh, uh, it's, a, uh, it's even our, our blessed teacher, the Buddha, fell into that same trap, and, uh, but his Kalyanamita, uh, Upalawana, who became a great uh, Arahant nun, and Ananda, who was his attendant and became a great Arahant monk, they, were, they, they supported the teacher in uh, being, uh, freeing himself from his delusions. And uh, uh, they um, was uh, successful in their, their plotting, skillful, skillful intervention to help the, um, the that kind of deluded state. Because in uh, whereas in the West, being in love with someone is is sort of taken as a, a great sort of blessing or something that is to be admired. You know, falling in love and then living living happily ever after, as Ajahn Jayasaro sort of puts in there. Perhaps they lived happily ever after. That's how fairy tales end, you know, the, the couple get together and have a, uh, after many trials and tribulations and then get married and then, quote unquote, they lived happily ever after. That, I don't know if that's ever happened in <laughs> ordinary human circumstances. But um, uh, in, in, uh, in Thailand, certainly, I think through much of Asia, the being in love is considered a kind of madness. And that it's a sort of a state of, of foolishness, and that if uh, and they expect it from young people. That if an older person falls in love, then generally the 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 people in the village will say, "Oh, you know, poor bloke, you know, get over it." They'll just uh, they're 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 kind of a, a bit uh, starry-eyed and a bit lost, but you know, it'll it'll calm down in a in a in a few months or a few years, you know. So that it's a sort of a, a state of delusion that you're helping people to 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 get over. Not that they're kind of anti people having good uh, friendships and partnerships, but um, that state of being in love and sort of starry-eyed, uh, besotted, kind of bedazzled, besotted, kind of completely absorbed in the uh, the the positive qualities of another person. That's that's not held in the same way as as in the. Uh, in the West and, and within um, certain European traditions, some some Asian traditions as well. You know, have the in in Indian mythology, you have like the um, partnerships like Rama and Rama and Sita and, and so forth. 
so that's that's there strongly within the mythology but uh, in uh, in in the Buddhist countries in Thailand and and uh, other Buddhist countries then it's uh, it's held in a very different way and I think it's uh, there's a lot to be said for that that uh, a, uh, a, a that a a couple a family that is is highly respected that the 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 um the partners uh, the the wife and the husband will be seeing each other as kalyanamita as spiritual friends and be relating to each other on a very human level and sort of a sense of of friendship and partnership rather than the sort of uh, completely bedazzled and and uh, and sort of uh, and bonded because the, i think the the power of the buddha's teachings uh, has filtered very, very much, uh, very effectively through the societies and the, the ways of thinking. So that that um, that metta, as, as Ajahn Chah puts it in this, the, the, that quality of love is transformed into metta. It's a, a love that liberates rather than a possessive love. The the pia, pia the dearness, um, the possessive love that comes from sort of being in love with someone or, or thinking, uh, you know, you belong to me, I belong to you. That kind of of, uh, of possessive loving is necessarily productive of, of dukkha, so that um, that uh, you you find that very uh, that is very much a part of the social structures. I would say in in Thailand, and I feel it's very 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 beautiful, very um, wholesome, noble part of the of the society. And the, the 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 Western model of assuming that you get married to someone and you're in love with them for the the next 40, 50 years and living quote unquote happily ever after it's like that that is a a a model in the mythology but it doesn't really happen on the ground whereas the that um, sense of uh, a friend a spiritual friendship and having a a a, a, a love that, that liberates a sense of supportive uh, affection um, a love that is non-possessive is something that's that's far more Skillful and beneficial, I feel, in, in society. So I'll leave it there for today. The next chapter, next section is called Summoner, and then after that is the miracle, the marvel of instruction. <laughs>